Howdy, everybody. I'm Robert Cannon. This is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. This is our second season premiere, and we have an incredible season in store. We have some absolute legends in the speech community on board. I'm extremely excited to share some time with them and bring their experiences to you. Additionally, we're going to be doing a few roundtable discussions this season. We might have a few guests with experience in a certain event weigh in with their thoughts on how to get a first in the round. We also have some national champions, coaches, current competitors, and a ton of voices who have an incredible insight into forensics. And we also just launched our new Figure of Speech Patreon page. So if you enjoyed these episodes, go on over to patreon.com slash figureofspeech and consider donating a few dollars to help us pay for some of the expenses. Today, we have an astounding episode lined up for you. Quite possibly the biggest legend in all of forensics, Larry Schnorr, walks us through his beginnings in speech, starting with his high school years back in 1951. Now, unfortunately, the first minute of the audio is cut off because of a technical problem during recording, but the rest of the interview is completely intact, and I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. Uh, Additionally, Larry needed to leave a little bit early, so we weren't able to ask the 10 survey questions that we typically ask. However... He promised me that he would come back on the show and answer any questions that the audience had for him. So this is an opportunity to have sort of a Reddit AMA for the godfather of speech and debate. So if you have any questions, find us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at Forensic Podcast. And let us know what we should ask Larry Schnorr when we get him back. So until then, sit back, relax, and listen to one of the most legendary minds in competitive speech. In episode 27, Larry Schnorr. It's such until after I got out of the uh, U.S. Navy and uh, went to college and majored in speech communication. And there, there was a debate class I was taking, and two of the debaters came up to me uh, after we had a class session and said, have you thought about joining the debate team? And I said no, and they convinced me I should, and and so I did, and so I did debate. In college? In college, yes. So I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but the, the only speech that you did in high school was like an oratory? Yes. And it was – now, the term oratory has changed throughout the years to mean so many different things. Was this like an original oratory, like a persuasive-style speech? No. Or was this like an oratory interp? It was an oratory – uh, that uh, was done by the Kellogg Bryan Peace Pact after World <laughs> War One. I love that you still remember it. That's so great. You remember it now, but not back then. <laughs> That's right. All right. And so you had done just that limited experience. Was it just one tournament in high school, or was yeah, it yeah, just one tournament? Then years ago, you know, that was in the the nineteen um, would have been about like nineteen fifty. Nineteen fifty. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> that's great. What, do you mind telling me what year you graduated high school or is that too revealing? I'm I know. To... I graduated from high school in 1953. 1953. All right. So you, you did in like early high school, you did a little bit of it. And what, what's the, the vibe of high school speech at that time? I mean, I, I don't know if you know much about nationals or anything like that. It, it wasn't uh, very widespread in Minnesota at that time. Mm. You know, because that was the only speech tournament as such that I knew of, and it was put on by the American Legion. Oh wow! Okay, so then you go to college, and some some friends recruit you to start doing debate. And do you remember what style of debate it was? Was it policy debate? 
Yes, it was policy debate. Because that's basically the only style at the time, is that right? That's right. And so you, how did you, uh, how did you fare with that? Oh, I, I did fairly well with that. I had good debate partners. That helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And the coach was very, very good. He was the chair of the speech department and gave me lots of encouragement. And you did that for, like, for what year? Do you remember that was your first year or second year in college? It was or my third? last three years in college. Okay. So this would have been, like, uh, 55, 56, 57? Is that right? No, this would have, would have been... I debated then in 19, uh, 1950, 51, 52, 53, something like that. And then do you, do you remember any of those topics that you debated? No, I really <laughs> cannot. What's the, what's the vibe like with, um, with debate at that time, collegiate debate? Oh, it, it, it was good debate. Uh, we, uh, it wasn't as widespread as it is today. There wasn't all of the different debate organizations that we have today. You know, we have uh-huh. so many different organizations and styles of debate, but back then it was just affirmative negative type. Uh-huh. You know, one of the, the big things that we've talked about on this podcast with a few different people, we've talked about speed and, you know, the, the spreading that happens within debate today. Um, was that a, a thing that you witnessed in the 50s style debate, or is that something that emerged much later? And what was that again? Uh, speed, like, you know, spreading, speaking very quickly. Was that something that policy debate happened? No, had? it wasn't, it wasn't uh, like, like what it is today. Um, it was good conversation. Good conversation. Uh, at a rate you could understand, you didn't have to worry, oh, you're going too fast. Yeah, wasn't anything like that at all. I, I almost get the sense that it was more civil in a way <clears throat> uh, back then. From some of the people that I've spoken to, would you would you agree with that, or was it still kind of uh, um, I don't know, not not that it's not civil today, but it can be a little cutthroat. Yeah, you know what I mean. No, I think I think it was perhaps more civil, more conversational. Uh, it wasn't a case where you had. You know, there were some schools that were very strong in debate, but it wasn't like uh, it is today where they are uh, going 50 wor- words a minute or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. so fast. Uh, and uh, they were very congenial with everybody. It, it was very pleasant. And so did you, were you competitive at the national circuit or mainly in Minnesota? Yeah, uh, just in Minnesota, and then except for there was an organization, Delta Sigma Rho, uh-huh. Kappa Alpha, that uh, we participated in as well. And uh, they were good organizations. Uh, I don't think either one of those exist anymore. And so was that the kind of um, the NFA slash AFA of the, of the time? Is that kind of a fair Yeah, assessment? I guess uh, that would be a good, good relationship, yes. Hmm. And did they host a national tournament back then? Yes, yes. Both of them held a national tournament. And then what, what about Pi Kappa Delta? Because they, they've been around for a long time. Did they have a that would, national That tournament? would be another one, yeah. And we were not a Pi Kappa Delta school. So it was these like three leagues, I guess, for lack of a better word, that were really kind of organizing these, these tournaments. And so do you know anything about those two that, that you had mentioned? I'm not familiar with those. Did they... Um, when do they kind of die off, or do you know much about those? Oh, gee, they they died off over a period of years. 
as um, things like uh, MFA were developed and uh, that the uh, other organizations started to, to develop, you know, the religious schools that have a, uh, a debate tournament now and that type of thing. Things change. I think it was probably due to cost factors, uh, changes in style, because Delta Sigma Rho or Tau Kappa Alpha, those tournaments were um, somewhat social, but also forensic oriented. And so for you, getting back to your journey, did you, you didn't do any sort of interpretation or, uh, or or write your own speeches or anything like that when you were in college? It was all strictly debate? No, it was all strictly debate. That's so funny because, I, and I don't mean any disrespect when I say this, I don't think of you as a debate person. I think of you more <laughs> as a speech person. Well, I'm, I'm sure there were others that even when I was debating that didn't take that. <laughs> uh, but no, I like debate uh, very much. Um, and it was very good. And then uh, after I graduated from college, I went into the Navy for four years. Okay, so I got it backwards. You did college first, then the Navy. All right, and then when you get into the Navy, you um, I'm sure that your speech background helps you in the Navy, right? Yes, yes. Or does it get you in trouble in the Navy? No, no, no. I was very good <laughs> in the Navy. Uh, and uh, I was stationed in uh, very good places. I was never aboard ship, however. Oh, really? Except when I was being transported, I was always stationed on a land base. And let me make a correction. I went in Finnish college after I got out of the Navy. See, I debated first in college a little bit, then I went into the Navy, and then I came back and joined the debate team for the th final three years of my college. So you kind of like put some armed forces right in the middle of your debate career. Is that right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, and then when you come out, now your your major in college, did you say it was communications? Is that what you said? Yes, it was speech communication and also history. I, I can't imagine after only going to one tournament out of high school that that was your goal out of high school. That had to have been something that developed out of the debate world. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, yes. That, that first experience in debate at college was not where we went to very many tournaments. The, what about the history? What uh, you you have a fondness for history? My history major. Yeah, I mean, what what drew you there? I I really enjoyed that very much because uh, I was uh, very active in history organizations to the standpoint of uh, dealing with sessions that dealt with the American Indian question as far as their reservations and their mm. uh, treatment in the country. Uh, I was also very concerned with, uh, even at that early stage, I was very in, involved with uh, black being important to consider because uh, Minnesota is basically, you know, white. But mm -hmm. we did have some black students, and, and we did have several of them that I worked with on the debate team. They were very, very good. And I still continue that uh, today. I'm very concerned with the way we treat our American Indians and the way we uh, discredit uh, the accomplishments of uh, black people in our country. All right, so you graduate from, I'm sorry, what, what university did you graduate from? I graduated from what was called then Mankato State University. And, and then now the name of the school is the University 
uh, Minnesota State University, Mankato. At Mankato, okay. And then did you get a job right away at that university, or did no, you? No, no, no. I taught in I taught in high school first. Oh. I taught uh, in uh, Minnesota in a high school in Worthington, Minnesota, southwest corner. And I was the, the speech coach, but I also taught then American history. And that then makes sense. I moved to California. And Did you I really? The uh, speech coach and drama teacher at uh, Modesto High School, Modesto, oh. California. But I only and what, stayed what year was that? For, uh, what? What year was that? That would have been in oh, if I can remember the exact year. Now let me. See, that would have been in the early 1960s. So you taught at uh, in, in Minnesota high school for, what, three or four years, something like that? Yes. And then you go to California, to Modesto. But I only taught there for one semester because my uh, wife's father passed away, mm-hmm. and uh, we moved back to Minnesota, and I took the— uh, I took, went into uh, taking uh, a job where he had worked. He was a banker. And so you, you started teaching at a, or start teaching, you started working at the bank? I said, yeah, I went into the bank and thought I would be a banker. <laughs> and I, I didn't enjoy that career. And that's when I went back and finished my graduate degree. While working at the bank at the same time? No, 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 no. I went back full time. You stopped. Okay. Where did you get your master's from? At, at Mankato. At Mankato? State University, man. It was just Mankato State University then. And then I worked in doctorate degree at the University of Iowa, Iowa City. Oh, okay. So I'm assuming you moved to Iowa for that. Uh, yes, I did. Not, uh, our family moved and spent one year there together as a full family, but uh, I was there uh, in addition to that. And so I mean, time, we had two daughters. I was about to ask you that. So you, you, you said family, so I'm assuming you have a couple children. So you have two daughters, and they move with you to Iowa for a year while you finish up. And then is the intention the entire time to go back to Mankato and teach there? Or what's the intention? Or just kind of look for a job wherever you can get it? Uh, I, I was looking for a job, but I was hired by Mankato. Well, that's a great fit. I mean, I guess they know you really well. Right. And so you get involved in... Uh, and collegiate speech. I'm assuming you're you're hired as a speech professor. Is that right? That's right. All right. And then and I, I'm also going to go out on a limb and assume that your your doctorate is in speech communications. Yes. And then what was your what was your your focus, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by focus. Uh, my focus really was doing the best job I could in the classroom. No, I mean as a as a doctorate student. Like, did you have a, uh, a research paper that you had had to publish or anything like that? Oh, I don't let me make a correction here. I didn't totally finish my doctorate. Oh, I see. So I didn't have that experience. Oh, I see. Because so, I had a job, and I wasn't sure that I needed the doctorate at that time. It wasn't like it is today. Right. And they're opening the door for you. You might as well jump and take the... Uh take the job right that makes sense you know you know about getting tenure at college level right yeah uh i i was hired at mankato the person was the chair of the department was a fellow by the name of vernon beckman and in, in my fourth year of working uh as just a regular faculty member 
he and I were driving to judge a speech tournament someplace, I can't remember where, and he turned to me and he said, oh, by the way, we've given you tenure. And I looked at him and I said, what? He said, yeah, you've got tenure. And, you know, normally you don't do it that way. Right. There's usually a review process. And so I stayed at Mankato, and when he retired from being department chair, I became the department chair Mm. of the speech department and was department chair, I think, for, oh, I think it was close for maybe, I'm going to say 30 years as department chair and and increased the number of people in the department. Uh, But I was also the director of forensics through that whole time period, as well as being department chair. So when you first begin there, what... Um, I'm very interested in, in the history of kind of the emergence of NFA and AFA and things like that. Were you was was Mankato part of that system, or was that yet to it be? It became part of that. The first um, organization that we were part of was uh, that Delta Sigma Rho that I told you. They mm-hmm. had a national tournament. As they were dying out, that's when the uh, AFA tournament started to come forward. I see. And, and that was late 70s, wasn't it? Um, about that time period. I'm looking I'm around my office to see the, the various plaques I've got hanging here. <laughs> because those, those have dates on them. Right. <laughs> that's how you remember as you go through the plaques. That's, that's yeah, your history. That's <laughs> but what about the emergence of NFA? Was that, did you have any, I know you, you were fairly instrumental in the beginning of AFA, Yes. Am, am I right? Right. But what about NFA? Did, were you involved in the beginnings of that? Uh, NFA, I wasn't involved in the very beginning, no. But I became involved uh, in it. The NFA tournament was really started by uh, uh, Professor uh, Seth Hawkins, Dr. Seth Hawkins from, uh, I think he was in Rhode Island at that time or someplace out like that out east. Um, and he's at NFA. And then... Uh, I finally got the encouragement, well, let's, we had enough money, we could go to both tournaments. What was the thinking behind starting AFA? AFA? Yeah. Because it was primarily a debate organization at first. Oh. And then we, we got the desire, a number of us that were uh, said, well, you know, we have people that want to do individual events that don't want to do debate. And mm-hmm. so we started getting involved that way. At the time, I mean, one of the more controversial practices of AFA, uh, since I guess it's a controversy, but it's heavily discussed, is the leg system of qualification. And I know that's been discussed probably ad nauseum over the decades. Um, yeah, and it's changed much. It has or has not? It has changed much. Well, how, how did it begin? And I guess it, AFA starts as like a tournament of, of like the cream of the cream of the crop, right? Is that fair to say? Well, yes. And and then I, I think it, the leg system came in when they saw, realized that they had to uh, make it stronger so that there wasn't a lot of weakness involved. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to qual- qualify by during the year to go because that's the way the debate session would go. Mm-hmm. The debate people always had to qualify. Did you have to qualify at the beginning of uh, of AFA, like the first couple of years, or was it kind of just anybody who wants to come? No, that that was something that was developed, and I, saw, I went through that three leg qualification. 
Now and, it is totally different than that. And I, I really can't tell you exactly what it is because I, I know they made some changes just this last year. Oh, really? Yeah. So what kind of... Um what kind of experiences you had, especially like in the in the 70s, like late 60s and 70s, uh, as during the civil rights movement, what were speeches like? Can you shed some light on that? Oh, boy, my memory is not that good, Robert. <laughs> you remember, they, they were speeches that are comparable. I mean, I'm not going to say that they were uh, so drastically different from what it's done today. Mm-hmm. Um, Whatever the current national problems were, questions were, uh, probably the recognition of certain um, things that people could could go to and what types of events they wanted to do and how many they wanted to do. Um, it's, it's very difficult to, to remember all of those things. Uh, I've established an archives that Mankato State or Minnesota State University of Mankato for BSR, uh, TKA, as well as some for T, um, AFA and for NFA. And so uh, people could come here and check to see some of the things that were at that particular time, you know. When you say archives, were they like uh, typed out uh, transcripts of the speech? Is that what what you mean by the, tra- the archives? It would be it would be um, all of the interstate oratory speeches mm. uh, that uh, are there for uh, a long period of time. I think it goes back to the 1935. Wow. There's uh, speeches and papers and uh, uh, things like from both. DSR from DSRTK, they're 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 from AFA, they're there from NFA, um, and so people could can contact the library and get help if they're doing a research question, something of that nature, you know. So the archives were not just your students, but students from other places as well. From the the organizations themselves. How did you emerge um, as as a leader within the the speech and debate community, like what was your journey? Because I, you know, I, I find you to be one of the, if not the most respected voice in the forensics community. Um, and not to say that you're uh, not worthy. You certainly do a great job in leadership and everything else, but I'm interested in how that happened. You know, like over the years, certainly other people, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. You said there was Dr. Seth um, who started, started NFA uh, what was your journey like? Well, it was um, primarily, I guess, maybe because I, I was not as um, narrow in, in, in what I did. I mean, I was accessible. Uh, mm-hmm. I was friendly. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, was concerned with student participation and uh-huh. of that and Many times I was, I suppose I could say that I was a uh, a mediator to go between factions within an organization, you know, that, that type of thing. I started off, uh, I think, doing a lot of that in the early 1970s with our speech uh, education program in Minnesota, you know, as a whole among the high school 
faculty and the work of high school faculty and and encourage people that way, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that it, it it just is something that develops. You know, there are some people, some coaches, and you can remember this. I mean, you had your own problems, you know, where some people didn't like what you were doing. Right. Remember correctly. That's correct. And, 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 and there, that's the same thing with coaches. Uh-huh. You know, and I, I just sort of consoled them, I guess I could say, this type of thing. I, I'd say that's a fair assessment because I, I remember, you know, I was a, a student representative um, from a- for AFA from 2008-2009, and I remember you doing that for me. I remember you kind of taking me aside and kind of guiding me friendly and, and through the system and kind of letting me know, uh, you know, how the whole system worked. I remember having a few conversations with you, and I really felt a, um, you know, like a, a real bond with you over that, and it, you really took me under your wing, and I was always very appreciative of that. Um, and I, I've, what you're describing right now is so true because I've seen it work in some of those meetings you know the uh, you know I'm, I'm the president of a smaller league in southern california certainly smaller than afa and i can only imagine what some of those meetings are like at the afa uh, committee level where people's lives are like their their livelihoods are on the line and their passions get really sure. inflamed and sure. i'm sure that that's quite a difficult job to try to make sure everyone kind of calms down and and does things the right way and I, I think that's something that you're quite skilled at, at doing is like uh, speaking with authority, but also in a, in a friendly kind of warm, welcoming way. Um, I'm curious about how your, how do you view NFA and AFA once AFA kind of gets going, once the AFA NIET is, is running, do you, do you view yourself as kind of, 50 50 or do you tend to favor one over the other what is what's your feelings about it uh i guess i would have to say i i was always involved with both of them and i didn't always take the same people to both tournaments Hmm. some tournaments some nras i would take students to because of of what I knew that they would have better success at NFA than they would at AFA, you know, what, mean, so that some and some students would go to both. What do you see as being some of the differences between those two tournaments? Oh well, it, it, part of it it's it's just the the style, the mm-hmm. different coaches that they would have. Um, this is, and it's hard to describe because it depends upon um, who the students are and, and what they are, are interested in. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there's also uh, different qualifications in regard to how the various events are the same, but they are also different from each other. Uh, so that a, a persuasive speech at NFA might not be as successful at AFA, and an AFA speech might not be successful at NFA because of the uh, subject nature, the style of delivery, um, the judge pool, background to the judging pool, definitely the judging pool. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Do you feel that AFA is a harder tournament than NFA or vice versa? Or obviously they're different, but do you feel that one is more particularly difficult to, to, to 
navigate? Through? I would hesitate to say that uh, one is stronger than the other. In fact, they're both strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are differences in the style of uh, possible delivery or the, the types of topics that may be involved mm-hmm. um, because of the, the tournaments are different from each other, um, but yet they're the same, you know, and, and it's partly some NFA coaches think nothing of AFA. AFA coaches think nothing of NFA. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's their individual choice, whereas I, I felt both are successful and uh, I was supportive of both uh, all the time that I, I could be. Talk me through the 80s. Um, in the 80s, at both of these tournaments, what are some of the the styles that you see changing and emerging? And um, like the 80s and into the early 90s, do you see any um, major shifts within the speech and debate community? Well, yes and no. Um, it meant there are many people who feel that NFA is more uh, welcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, where AFA is more is tighter in its qualifications, um, but the, but that is changing. You know, I mean, over the years because uh, of transportation problems, of cost problems, many schools have had their budgets cut. Um, things of that sort. Uh, there's been problems where. Uh, uh, some people, some coaches have done things that were not, uh, shall we say, within the realm of um, what should be done. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so well, it's a variety of things, Robert. Well, one thing, you, you kind of touched on something I want to ask you about. One of the guests that I had on this show earlier um, was Lance Geiger, and uh, it was interesting because I I don't know if you you remember Lance, but he um, was a, uh, a tournament director for AFA and um, came under a lot of controversy because of something that happened at AFA. I believe it was ninety seven, ninety eight, something like that. And um, he I I didn't know that he had this history. I'd heard about it uh, in in tab rooms. It was kind of a you know a, a folk tale. And he um, came on the show and he kind of apologized for some of the things that had happened. Uh, and he, he had an apology to you. I'm not sure if you ever heard that episode, but he, he did apologize to you um, for really letting you down. And um, that, it's a really interesting episode where he talks about uh, some of the, the things that he did that were questionable for the AFA tournament that year. Do you remember that instance? Uh, I, I do, but very vaguely. I think what he had described was that there were a few students that were competing at AFA who had not uh, qualified or maybe they had qualified and their paperwork hadn't been turned in. Uh, and they, his newspaper, his school newspaper, found out about it um, after the, the tournament was over and they found out that the students that were competing weren't actually students at the time. Uh, and I think that was a, a big controversy. He wound up leaving forensics as a result and kind of starting a whole new career. I think he felt... Uh, a lot of shame over that whole instance. Uh, I'm just I'm curious if you if you uh, uh, some of the controversies over the years. And I'm not trying to get you to to dish dirt about anybody, but um, are, are there 
to me, I can only imagine being in that situation. That would be disappointing to say the least, uh, you know, in that moment. Are there other kind of disappointing moments? And I'm not even asking you to name names, but are there are situations that might have arisen throughout the years, either AFA or NFA, kind of behind the scenes that might have um, that might be interesting to somebody who wants to know the history? <laughs> well, let, let's say that there have been um, some uh, romantic things yeah. that uh, could play in there to the standpoint where a coach is involved with one of their students or right. from another team. Uh, and, and, and there's been several, but that that's normal in any activity, other than just yeah. forensics, it's you know not uh, not something that only affects one organization. It affects many different organizations. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, if I didn't bring up. I mean, controversially and, and kind of widespread, there was an Atlantic article recently about uh, oh, Peter yeah, Pober. I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> and you know, I you have had a long working relationship with Peter Pober. Was that a, um, how did that affect you? It, it really did affect me. I, I just could not, you know, I, I was a, a person, well, I met Peter Pober for the first time uh, at Southern Georgia, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a student at that time. And I was sitting outside, and after they were posting final things, you know, up, and I saw this young man come out, and he was crying, and I figured, well, it was a problem, because I was just sitting out there in the sun. And so I walked over to him, and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, I didn't break. And, you know, and he was just his last year of competition and everything. And so I sat with him and talked with him for a long time, said, you know, it isn't the end of the world. You know, you can go on, you, you know, it happens, you just kind of everything. And that was our first meeting. And then, and then over the years, uh, I was aware of his going to graduate school, but then lost track with him until I was at a, another tournament, I don't know how many years later. And he was there with his team, and I can't remember what college he was at at that time. But we renewed our conversation and uh, are talking to each other. And mm-hmm. over the years, he was doing very well as a forensics coach. Uh, but I knew that he had strange things, like he, the students had to wear what he told them to wear. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't have it, he would go out and evidently buy it for them to wear, like the neckties. And they had to be dressed every night before the next days as to what they were going to wear, and he had to approve what they would be wearing. And, you know, and I thought, well, that's odd, you know. But I had no idea of what happened that uh, recently here, you know, where he was doing whatever he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I feel sad for him because he was a good coach. His right. students did do good events. And and those students, I'm sure, would agree with you. Their problems with him was what he did with them of a personal nature. Not of the, the coaching caliber. Have you spoken to Peter since all this happened? Uh, no, I have not. I have no idea 
uh, of where he is or what his current situation is right now or not. I know nothing about it. How how did you hear about that news article and that whole situation? Somebody called me. I can't really? remember who it was that called me, and they said, have you seen the new Atlantic? I said, no. And they told me and uh, what it was. And I, at first, I couldn't even believe it, you know. Mm. But So you didn't know about it until it came out in the, the article? That's right. So there, there weren't grumblings that you that had reached your ears about this kind of thing? Like there wasn't little rumors kind of sneaking around or anything no, like that? No, uh, because he had a partner, you know, and... Uh, I mean, I, I knew he was gay, but I had no idea of what <laughs> what avenues it was going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, I remember, too, when I was competing, um, what you're saying is absolutely right about them. Uh, it was almost militant, you know, but it was effective and it was also intimidating because I remember seeing some of the students and they were dressed impeccably and you, you knew who was from that school when you would see these incredible ties that were, you know, $500 ties or something. And you're going, that, that's beautiful. And, you know, their suits were immaculate and everything just looked crisp and clean. Uh, so it was effective. And it was, like I said, intimidating. Uh, it just, you just looked sharp. Um, but uh, I think obviously there has to be some, uh, <laughs> some boundaries between coach and, and competitor. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate that that, that kind of played uh, out. Minneapolis used to have a lot, has a lot of community colleges, and that's where I recruited students from a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And I can remember one student that I wanted to recruit, and I got him down here. And his first two tournaments, he didn't do very well. But he didn't. Uh, he, he was okay, but he wasn't doing very well. And I figured out his problem was that he didn't have decent clothes to wear. So I said, uh, come on, John, we're going to go shopping. And he said, well, I don't have any money. I said, I didn't ask you if you had any money, did I? No. I said, I'm taking you shopping. And we went to a men's clothing store where I knew the owner. Uh, and I had talked to the owner. And I said, I've got this student. He has to have decent clothes in order to, to uh, look good when he's competing. Mm -hmm. And the uh, men's clothing store said, bring him right in. And we got him fixed up. As soon as he started wearing those suits, he started winning. <laughs> he is a wonderful speech professor today. He teaches in northern Minnesota at one of our state universities. Uh, he went on when he was competing for me and did marvelously well. And then when he became a coach himself uh, at a school that had forensics programs, they did well. And uh, that pleased me but it, you know it was a thing where you help when you can help but you do it in a reason or in a, a manner in which uh, it's respectable let me put it that way right uh, for instance my wife and I we have a, a, a basement bedroom uh, and over the years we've lived in this house we've had 22 different students that we have helped by giving them a place where they would be safe and mm -hmm. where they could afford to live because they never had to pay us anything. They became like our adopted children, you might say, or that sort of nature. And so we hear from them all of the time. 
and some of them have gone on to marvelous careers. Yeah, and I think I think speech is a it's an activity that that does kind of um, it helps students in a unique way. It is competitive, you know, so we have a similarity to a lot of sports activities, but there's also just I feel like there's so much more um, trying to bring students up that have this potential and and this ability if they only had a, you know hand out they they could really use that to springboard their lives into a into a better place and i think forensics is kind of almost uniquely um designed to cater to some of those students and um and and i'm i totally believe what you just said because i've heard it from other coaches as well who've done the same thing like oh let me get the student a suit or you know they need a nicer shirt they don't have it and that starts to resonate with the students a lot of times this idea of uh looking your best and what does that say about you this outward appearance and people ultimately are kind of judging you in life and if you um if you can win that battle quickly in at first glance then you have a chance to say something that can really resonate with them and, and be different uh, but still um, you know competent and clear and eloquent and i think that's a really important life skill and you know, I, I, it's unfortunate, uh, talking what we were talking about earlier, that some coaches kind of start to blur that line and it gets a little too much uh, involved with their personal lives. But, you know, I, I'd hate to throw out the idea that these 22 students that you're mentioning didn't, ha you know, I, I would hate to say, oh, well, there has to be a removal from, from teacher to student because those 22 students that you're talking about would have been um, you know, more disenfranchised than they would have been having had that experience. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really delicate balance, and it's, it's um, not, not an easy decision. To students, I, I, um, they weren't all forensics people. <laughs> mm. I mean, we've had uh, nursing students and others just general students. Yeah. So. Are there any... Um, any I guess like coaching tactics that you've used throughout the years that people uh, could benefit from learning about what, what's your coaching style like? Can you describe it? Oh, wow. Well, uh, I would let them start. I'd listen to them and uh, they could probably tell from my facial reactions if there was something that I wasn't thinking. <laughs> uh, and, and we always had good discussions afterwards and then I would probably I know there were times I would say, why did you pick this piece? What is there <laughs> about it that you think it's going to work for you? you know, and, and get them to analyze it um, rather than just by going by a particular author's name that somebody else may have used and they thought, oh, I can do that too, and yet they don't. Or I, I ask them, uh, what do you think the author was trying to do here? You know, how far? Where did this come from? And, and just good, just general conversation with them. And, uh, but do it in a way in which I didn't tell them you have to do it this way. I'd say, yeah. have you considered this? What about doing this? Or, well, you, you need to think about this. <laughs> and those are the types of things because they make the decision. They're the ones that are delivering it. They are the ones that are writing the uh, the oratory, let's say, and I say, well, uh, something seems to be missing here. Could you go mm -hmm. back and check again to see if you got it right? You know, this, 
I didn't always know. And uh, you just have to be supportive. Hey, can you think of an instance where you've been, you coached someone and then you had a, an opinion and later on you turned out to be wrong and you, you had to eat some crow when, uh, when, when they said, oh, no, say, this is what I wanted to do and, and your decision was wrong? Uh, yeah, I did have a, a couple of experiences like that where uh, a male student um, took liberty with one of the female students uh, or a female student <laughs> who uh, evidently liked men. And I can remember uh, I always had a deadline for when people should be in their own rooms at a motel when we were at a tournament. Mm -hmm. And I would always check. And uh, I can remember this one tournament. I think it was down in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Uh, I was checking with the rooms. And I had um, was going into the boys' room, and here there were several girls in there on the team. And I said, you're supposed to be in your own room right now. And I said, well, um, uh, we can't. And I said, what do you mean you can't? And they told me that there was this one girl in there with this, this man. Mm -hmm. And I went on that door, and I knocked on that door, and I said, open up this door. And they we're opening it up, but he was putting on his pants. I said, get, you get out of here or I'm going to report you to the police right now. Right. And I said to that gal, you are done. You know, uh, I was at a tournament in Texas on the border in uh, Texas and had a good, at the Arizona University there. And I, again, Doing my bed check, there were two gals that weren't in their room, and I had no idea where they were. And so the other two gals that were in that room said, "Well, they were picked up by these two people." You know, I didn't know. I sat up all night on the mm. motel railing, you know, thing, and I heard them come around the corner of the building in the morning, and they were shocked to see me. And I read to them, read when I said I spoke to them about the danger. I said, I'm responsible for you. You didn't know those two guys. They took you across the border into Mexico. They could have put you in a whorehouse. Right. How would I have known this, you know, or anything of this nature? And it would have all fallen on me. And I said, you are disrespectful to your teammates and everything like that. I took them out of that tournament, and they were off the team. They wanted to be on it, and I said, no, I can't trust you. You lied to me. I can't trust you. Yeah. And, and one of them happened to be a relative of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that made it even worse. And those are, those are heartbreaking decisions, too, especially if, I mean, at the back of your mind, if, if they're good, if these are good competitors, and you're going, oh, you know, we could really do well, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not fair to the rest of the team. It's not fair to you, it's really ultimately not fair to them, you know, this idea that they can slide by and, and okay, but you're good at speech, so we can make an exception in your case. That's not fair to do to them. That's not a good educational You model. know what I could do? I, I, I keep uh, track of things and people. I've got several notebooks 
Uh, I might go through these notebooks, and if, if I find a letter that I got from somebody and everything, I could make a copy of it. And if you send me your mailing address, I'll send you some of those to read. Because I'd love to. More than anything. And, and I do have to be going now because I have another engagement. Oh, okay. Well, uh, we'll have to have you back on the show soon, and uh, we'll go through our survey questions with you, and maybe we can open it up to the listeners in case they have any questions for you. You know, we could do a whole episode of questions and answers with you. Okay, that sounds good to me. Well, if you'd like to find us, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle there is at Forensic Podcast. And we do have a new Patreon page set up for those of you who'd like to help sponsor the show. So go on over to patreon.com slash figure of speech to see all the different donation tiers and access some really special Patreon-only content over there. All right, well, Larry, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. So until next round, keep talking. And as Larry Schnorr says, it isn't the end of the world if you don't break. I love an actress Oh, you're acting now Cause if you're not somebody Must show you how You got the same Funky old world charm I don't know where you come from But you're perfect for the part I don't know